I'm not the house of cards that falls down easily Ooh, I'm strong enough to handle what you throw at me Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta-Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show, after several hundred interviews, the format is this. Intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every second hi everyone we've got a really special show well every show is special but this one is a topic that um, hasn't been discussed which is odd for me who has discussed so many things but i'm really happy to have um, the person i have on with me her name is wendy levine correct wendy did i pronounce that correctly yes okay i wanted to say levine so badly (laughs) (laughs) It's just a little thing I do uh, that's irritating. But anyway, Wendy Levine, you've written a book called Butterflies Are Free, What About Me? One Woman's Battle with Anorexia Nervosa. And what I love about this, because you and I had the chance to talk on the phone, is that you talk about what many people don't, which is that this is a recovery battle like any other recovery battle, and it can go on over the course of someone's lifetime, meaning their teens, their 20s, their 30s, their 50s, their 80s. And it anorexia, and well, any kind of an eating disorder other than um, overeating, uh, that one's like okay to talk about when you're when you're older, but things like anorexia and bulimia and so on, those are things that people think of as a young person's disorder, and um, and that has its own complica- complications and stigma. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. But first, I will shut up and let you talk. Wendy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. This is a very important topic, which is near and dear to my heart, because I have, um, unfortunately, been dealing with anorexia nervosa since I was 16 and a half, and next year I'll be 64. So um, anything I can do to help anyone avoid the pain I have known and the loss I have experienced because of this terrible um I'm going to call it addiction, an addiction because mm-hmm. it really is an addiction in my opinion. Yeah, and that's interesting that you say that because there would be clinicians that would argue, you know, that calling it an addiction, but that's what makes it something that you have relapses just like you would with a drug addiction. Um, there are relapses. Anytime you get stressed in your life, the thing that you're going to run to is are those things that 
for your addiction. So um, what? how old were you when you wrote your book? My book was written over the period of, I'd say, at least 10 years. Um, I started it and I stopped, started it, stopped several times. Um, I started it while I was married and then um, didn't pick it up for years after I was divorced. And then all of a sudden I just said, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it now and get it done. And I'd say a 10 year period. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sometimes people, I've got a a guest that comes on regularly, Dr. Paul Meyer, he can whip out a book in a weekend. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's a whole different, uh, it's a whole different thing when you're writing about your, your soul and your life experience that can take a long, a long time and be a, a long process. So how has it, how did it feel for you when you put it out there so that anyone could read it? Oh, I had been, after I, you know, pressed the button <laughs> and let it go, I was thinking, oh my God, what did I do? Right. Um, because I have exposed everything. I, you know, tongue in cheek said there are no skeletons left in my closet. I have put everything out there, everything I've been through. Um, major depression and the treatment I had for that and um, relapses and I mean just you know to have put all of this what I'm going to call intimate information out there for anyone to pick up Mm -hmm. and read Um, you know people said like that's really brave of you and I don't know if it's brave, but I do know that I'm really tired of hearing about people losing their battle. I do know that there are some people who every day die from eating disorders. Yes. I'm one of the lucky ones, I think. I'm not lucky in the respect that I still count every calorie and I still have body dysmorphia. And um, in really stressful times, I go back to heavy restricting. Mm. But um, I, you know, this is no joke. Eating disorders are one of the most, um, they have the highest mortality rate of any yep. of the psychiatric disorders. And they are exceedingly difficult to treat. Right. And in that vein, I wasn't diagnosed until I was in my late 20s, early 30s. So the eating disorder really had time to take hold. And people can say, well, didn't your family do anything? Well, in the 70s, when I was, you know, first dealing with this, people didn't know about it. I'll say most people didn't know about it. Um, And my family knew there was something wrong, you know, because I refused to eat with them. Um, it took me, you know, I, a long time when I was in college and I was living at home for most of my college career, but I remember it took me a long time to get dressed because I would put on one outfit and that wasn't good enough. I looked too fat in that. So then I'd take those clothes off, put on another outfit and, you know, right. they'd come home from work and just see all the clothes like laying around on my bed. And, um, but they had no idea what was wrong. Right. So one of the things that you had said to me, um, I've got two questions. I want to make sure I remember the other one. So I'm making a little note. Um, one of them is you had talked about how people don't seem to 
give any credence to the fact that an, a, a person over 40 even can struggle and relapse with anorexia and that many times, you know, you've been the oldest person there in a hospital or, or wherever that's battling this. And uh, how has that, how is that for you in terms of your interaction with the other patients that are there also struggling that are younger and also from the staff of, of, you know, the treatment where you're getting treatment? Well, I've been older than the patients and older than some of the staff members treating Mm me. Right. And um, I felt a little bit like a mother figure, especially for one person who I really didn't think was going to make it. And I'm happy to say that she is going to be finishing up nursing school. And, um, you know, they, they really thanked me because they looked, I'm not going to say they looked up to me, but they looked at me as like, oh, my God, she's so much older and she's been dealing with this and um, she knows something. And, you know, I would tell them it's not worth it to give up your life. I mean, I told them how I gave up career advancement because um, I did work hard wherever I worked. But when you have an eating disorder that is obvious, like I was painfully thin, even though I didn't see it. And um, I had to take a month off to go into treatment. They're not going to advance you um, in your career path. And, um, you know, I told them I missed out on that. I missed out on a scholarship, which we can talk about later, you know, to do graduate work abroad. Um, I told them that the eating disorder cut across all parts of my life and um, that, you know, I wanted to shake them and it's just not worth it. It's that they're lucky that they were diagnosed at an earlier stage than I was. And I told them they have a good chance of recovery because it is known that the earlier eating disorder is detected and a person begins treatment, the greater the chances are for a full recovery. Right. When you have run into someone that is that struggles with this, that are older, um, do you feel like, oh, good, I found someone who gets it? Or is there still sort of a, um, you know, a don't talk about it even amongst each other? Um, I haven't run into two. I do know one. I do have one friend who um, actually has a few friends and um, I She's a dear friend, and um, I did actually see her the other day, and we try not to talk about it because it's not really good for people who are, you know, suffering, and she, unfortunately, is very ill right now with anorexia, and I told her that, um, because she told me some people told her she looks great, and I said, look, I'm your friend, I love you, and I'm going to tell you, you don't look great. Yeah, you you're not healthy, and I'm afraid something's going to happen to you, because I wouldn't be a good friend if I didn't tell the truth. Right. How about in terms of your family? Um, my brother tells me the only fat there is is between my head, between my ears. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm afraid that because of what they've been through with me, um, that they will not tell me the truth, even if I 
you know, I'm at a normal weight, which makes it really rough because I've had people say to me, um, oh, I never knew that about you now that my books come out and like a lot of people have um, ordered it and read it who I know, and I'm surprised that some of the people, they're older people too, who've come up to me and said, I never knew that. Um, and I think they must think, oh, you're fat. Because to an anorexic, if you tell them they look good, they interpret it that is into, oh my God, I look too fat. Mm. And that's how I took it the other night when a woman said to me, I'm so proud of you. What you did is so wonderful, but I never knew that about you because you just always look like you. Ah, okay. Interesting. How are you with, you know, being around people who struggle with an eating disorder, but let's say it's binge eating and they are overweight? Um, my roommate um, at the treatments, at the last treatment center I was in seven years ago, and I'm not sure if I'm supposed to give names because... No, don't I, give names. No, yeah. I didn't think so. Okay, she was a binge eater, and I didn't even know about binge eating until I met her. And, um, you know, I didn't understand much about it until we talked, and she didn't understand about me until we talked. And we bonded, and we became so close. And um, tragically, this past spring, she passed away of lung cancer. Mm. at a very young age, and it's really left a hole in my heart. Um, I'm keeping in touch with her family, um, but, you know, to for her to have suffered, you know, with an eating disorder and then die at a young age from another horrible disease, it just is not fair. No, it isn't. And I guess what I, what I meant is in terms of that judgment, because there's the judgment on you, uh, your own body dysmorphia, does that stay on you or does it also extend onto other people and what they look like in terms of their weight? No, I think I see other people accurately. Um, you know, I would never say to someone, gee, you're fat. But um, I do know overweight people. Um, I love them. There are some people in my family who are overweight. I love them because it's what's inside that counts. Right. So that's the piece that I think is, you know, people don't understand is uh, they think sometimes I've heard this from people in, in different groups and different listeners that I've written in, you know, they the judgment is really about themselves and their own body. It's less often it's that that judgment extends to other people. No, I, you know, I, I don't judge people by their looks um, because looks are, you know, you hear young people say, oh, I want to marry someone who's handsome and this and that or whatever. Um, that's not a good reason because God forbid they have an accident or they have an illness and they can be disfigured. You better love the person for what's inside. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Another, I was going to say another problem that I have in, at this juncture in my life, my recovery is because I am at a quote unquote normal weight. People do not realize that I struggle every day. Um, I get on the scale first thing in the morning and if the number is um, at an acceptable number, it's going to be a good day. But if mm -hmm. 
scale number is not at an acceptable point by my standards, the day starts off as a bad day. And um, I watch everything I eat. I don't eat, um, you know, cake, um, cookies, ice cream. Um, I went to a family birthday party recently and they had pizza. This was a child's birthday party and um, I'm ashamed to say that I used one of my old tricks um, saying that um, I had a bad stomach to get out of eating. Um, Mm -hmm. And my friend um, whose grandchild it was, um, she's a friend who's like family, she knew that I was trying to pull the wool over her eyes. It's just I couldn't eat pizza and I couldn't eat cake. And people don't understand. In, you know, the therapy that you've been in, I'm sure there's been, you know, different diagnoses and things like that thrown around. What kinds of things? And has medication treatment been something that's been, um, you know, talked about or discussed? No, I'm not saying that that's what should be. I'm just wondering, you know, what kinds of things have been thrown to you and also where this originates from, from childhood or, you know, those kinds of explorations? Well, childhood, I really think when I look back that I was depressed and no one um, really honed in on it. I, you know, look back at my childhood. I had loving parents and um, I had two older brothers and one, you know, it was a strange kind of relationship and the other we're best friends and um i you know didn't start on any type of medications unfortunately until i was in my 20s when i was in college and i was um diagnosed as being depressed and then i was started on an antidepressant and i vaguely remember not staying on it for too long I know, I know, no one likes commercials, but seriously, folks, without the help from these organizations, we could not stay on the air. Please give a shout out to zencharts.com. If you're a mental health or addiction treatment center, you'll want to use their EHR. It's gorgeous, and they're just good people. And also MyGenetics, M-Y-G-E-N-E-T-X.com, because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment. And lastly, CopeNotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health. See, that was painless. Support them as they support us. Back to the show. And then um, when I was finally diagnosed, I remember the first drug that I was given because it was just approved in this country was Prozac. And it was like a happy pill for me. It didn't take weeks to work. It was like it worked overnight. And I was just humming along. It didn't it helped with the depression, not with the eating disorder, but it really worked and it's it worked for a few years, and then all of a sudden, one day, it just like it was gone. Um, the it depression just stopped was working. Back. It stopped mm. working. I had and, that with Vyvanse. So, I mean, not Vyvanse. I'm sorry. I had that with um, Zoloft. Mm-hmm. 
and it was really scary. And now I'm on a combination of, um, I guess, four or five different medications for the depression because it is major depression. Um, I will say um, during this conversation, because anyone who is going to pick up my book will see that I have been through ECT, which is shock therapy. Um, I guess it was two or three times, and I think it saved my life. People say, isn't that drastic? Well, I'd rather have had that than die. Right. Exactly. How about things to deal with the um, obsession piece of the counting of the calories and having to get on a scale and monitoring your food? In what ways has that been talked about? Um, we're told in the treatment center um, and during individual therapy. I cannot tell you how many scales I've had and given to various therapists during the years because they say, just give me your scale, everything will be okay. And I give them the scale and, you know, maybe one or two weeks I can handle it. And then I go out and buy another scale because I can't, like, it's, um, that's why I say it's like an, an addiction because you need your fix to see where you are in order to go on. Right. And I'm sure there are going to be people in the medical community who will want to lambaste me because I'm saying it's an addiction. But I've even had professionals tell me that it's something that you never get over. It's always going to be sitting there on your shoulder. Right. And well, that yeah, no that one, that's the nature of addiction, exactly. Yep. Hmm. So it's the constant everyday management of, of this. Mm -hmm. And if something stressful happens in your life, um, that's your fallback is to run to that because that's safety, I would imagine, or coping. Right. In 2010, I lost a job. I um, got divorced. It was, I initiated the divorce, but still it's a divorce. And my beloved dad passed away. And I just had such a meltdown. And, um, yeah, I really was in bad shape because that's I went right for the eating disorder, which spiraled into depression. Or, I mean, the depression brought me to the eating disorder. It's really the chicken and the egg bit. You don't know which comes first. Right. And where do you – is this – are you at a place now where you can monitor, you know – what's happening and you will get yourself into therapy or do you have people in your life that will say, Hey, we're noticing this is going on. And, you know, you, no, I you know, I have people in my life who know, um, and I, who I trust and I believe, you know, like I have one friend who, um, didn't really get it until I think she gets it a little bit more now that she's read the book, but, um, you know, will lecture me, um, and especially now that I wrote the book. Well, you wrote the book, so you've got to be a role model, and you've got to, you know, show people that you can rise above it. And some days, I'm going to admit, it's hard. But I do a lot of self-talk to get through things. Um, I, you know, might want to delay breakfast if I'm not going to work. Like today I had off and um, I said, well, I could wait till later to have breakfast because I'm not going to be using my brain that much. And then I said, but I'm hungry. 
And it's a conversation I had, you know, not out loud with myself, but back and forth in my mind. And I decided I'm going to eat breakfast because I'm hungry. I don't have to wait till 11 o'clock to have breakfast. Right. Interesting. So what are you, what do you do to go out and educate, you know, about this? Because I know that right there was writing the book and I know that you go out and do talks and so on. So what about that um, has become such an important part of your life? Well, writing the book was the stepping stone because I am going to be giving talks. I spoke with the um, alumni office at the university from which I graduated and there's a possibility that I'm going to travel there in the spring to give a talk at that university. Um, I want to try to um, go into the school systems because it's really, I mean, at the age of 10, people are already having eating disorders. Right. I want to go into the school system. Um, I also belong to a, um, I'm Jewish and I belong to a women's group called Hadassah, and it's an international women's group. And I belong to my local chapter, and they're inviting in February during National Eating Disorders Awareness Week, they're inviting some sisterhoods to come in um, the program. So there'll be five um, organizations coming to a program that I'm going to be speaking at and educating people about eating disorders. And, um, you know, I was also asked if I would be on another show. And um, I'm, you know, trying to publicize my book to get out there in hopes of getting more speaking engagements. Um, you know, because the more people who know about the book and I get exposure, the more I can go out there and help people. I said, even if my book only helps one person, I sincerely mean um, that it will have been worth the pain of writing it and reliving. Right. Reliving it. Because it is. That's what people don't you know, don't realize I, I have another guest that came on and she talks about her um, near-death experience and what we, she helps people understand, you know, what it's about. She's written books about it. And what they don't understand is that um, every time she talks about that, which she's chosen to make that her career or, you know, what she does, her advocacy, but every time she talks about the experience of it, it was it's extremely painful. Mm-hmm. And I think um, a lot of times people don't understand that when you are sharing such a personal thing about yourself, it can be, there's a process to being able to be vulnerable like that on a consistent basis. Because you're not talking about widget making. You're talking no. about a very, you know, a very personal thing. So, mm-hmm. yeah. But. Um, I know I'm not alone because according to the National Eating Disorders Association, in the United States alone, 20 million women and 10 million men suffer from a clinically significant eating disorder at some point in their life. Right. And I mean, that's pretty serious. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Um, when- Go ahead, Wendy. I'm sorry. I. I just lost the train. I was 
It's okay. That's why editing is fabulous. Yep. <laughs> the call waiting. I think you heard it. That went off and I was like, oh, go away. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't hear it. I didn't hear it. Yeah, so yep. you're, you're good there. Well, what, what is, um, you know, what's next for you? Are you going to do a follow-up book? I know people ask that when you've written book and then written one book and then, oh, you must be writing another, but some, some people do. Um, but you know, what, what is it that you want to take forward from, from this experience? I just want people to, to make people aware of eating disorders because believe it or not, there are still people in the medical community who do not know about eating disorders. Um, I, you know, have my, my same friend who I told that she doesn't look well, um, saw a doctor a few months ago who wrote down for her diagnosis that she's in remission from an eating disorder. And I was like, is he a moron? She's clearly not in remission. Right. And, um, you know, she's worried because she's got to go back to him soon. And, um, you know, you have to educate medical students. Um, that would be something I would love to do is get in there and educate medical students because I'll tell you about an experience. It's in my book, but it was in the 70s. Um, when not a lot was known, and just for a three-month period, I had abused laxatives, um, and I went to the doctors, and the medical assistant said, get on the scale, and I said, oh, no, no, and she said, well, you have to get on the scale, and I said, I don't want to, and I, she cajoled me. I got on the scale, and she said what the number was, and I started crying, and I said it should be lower with all the laxatives I took. I would think if someone said something like that in a doctor's office, like, you know, an alarm bell would go off. Nothing was said. Right. And those, I, I had an experience with, with that. This place was just 20 ways to Sunday. This place was wrong, wrong, wrong. Um, the fact that they could never keep a mental health professional, it was a brain training place. Um they could never keep a mental health counselor on staff there it was, you know, issue number 20, 270 with this place. But I remember the guy, the the doctor put me on a scale and I had said, um, I don't, he, he asked me before I got on, how much do you weigh? And so I told him, oh, that's what it was. How much do I weigh? I told him my best guess, because I don't get on a scale every day. That's how I handle you know, my issues are around that is I don't look at a scale because it will determine my mood for the day and it's healthier for me not to. Um, so uh, I didn't realize that the machine that I was standing on to do an exercise was also calculating my weight. So he asked me my weight while I was standing on it, didn't tell me that it was calculating my weight. And I told him my weight. And then he said, well, actually, you're blah, blah, blah. And I was it felt like I got punched in the gut. Now me, I knew immediately that is so wrong. And I lit into him. Mm-hmm. What kind of horrifying practice is this? That is so mm-hmm. wrong. Um, but, you know, he didn't think anything was wrong with it. <laughs> There's a lot wrong with it. And that's why in a facility they have you get into a paper gown and you are just weighed backwards. You cannot see the scale because 
Like, that's not why you're there. You're not supposed to be focusing on your weight. It's ironic you're there because of your weight. Right, but that's, um, they don't want you to focus. But that's not the real issue. And shaming someone or trying to catch mm-hmm. someone. Oh, my that's gosh. Pathological. This guy was, I called him a baby psychopath. He was on his way to becoming a full-blown one. But, yeah, he just... Mm-hmm. Um, that that was fascinating, but yeah, you don't you don't put someone up there and then make them tell you what they think their weight is, and then say, oh, by the way, blah blah blah. It's horrifying. No, that's terrible. But yeah. yeah, it there's a lot of misinformation, and um, that addiction piece is huge. We don't have a handle in terms of the mental health and behavioral health community which includes addiction treatment. Um, we don't have a handle on how to treat addiction at all. So I can't say that, you know, eating disorder should follow the model in um, other areas of addiction because those aren't <laughs> doing well either. But I think the consideration of treating it as an addiction needs to be there. And I do know that they you know, a treatment center I was in, they said, well, let's, you know, model after the 12-step Alcoholics Anonymous. And I didn't, you know, that didn't do anything for me. Um, But I did want to say that um, it's not just a person, you know, says I'm going to have an eating disorder and I'm going to be stubborn and, you know, that's it. It's um, part um, genetics too. I do know that in my family, I have double whammies on both sides, maternal and paternal. I have relatives who suffer from eating disorders. And, um, you know, I've heard people say, oh, I wish I could be anorexic just for a day or a week. And like, to me, that's so ignorant. They really don't understand. I mean, anyone who would wish for that, Oh, I've had friends say, I wish I could make myself throw up. And I'm like, no, you you have no idea what you're saying. It's those throwaway statements where people just have no clue. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really hoping that by reading my book, which is scenarios of what triggered me into having the eating disorder, um, it, you know, from teenage years, actually before teenage years, I was put on a diet between the ages of 12 and 13 by the family doctor, which is an awkward period of time anyhow. I mean, people's bodies, girls are changing. And um, okay, I was a little chunky, but he gave me this book, I'll never forget it, um, a little yellow book called A Girl and Her Figure. And I looked it up online, and it's still available for $19. No, oh I'm not going to waste my money. It was like from 1959 or something. It, it was just a terrible pamphlet. And um, it was even worse because his daughter, who was thin, was my friend. And um, that's the first time that I was introduced to dieting. And um, I, you know, it's people made comments, whether, you know, they meant it jokingly, but I, what I have in my book, they were not made in vain or jokes, but they were hurtful comments that I heard and I took it to heart and, um, you know, being sensitive by nature, it just triggered it. And, um, 
you know, it was a full-blown eating disorder, and we had no idea what was wrong. I was um, graduated from college in New York State, and then after that, I moved to Boston, and I was seeing a therapist for a year, and I would tell her that I'm, I feel fat, and I was always measuring my food and this and that, and after a year of seeing me, she told me that she thinks I have anorexia nervosa, something she couldn't handle. She didn't know anything about, and she referred me to Mass General Hospital, and that's when I was first diagnosed. Mm. And God's love, that psychologist. You know, I took it a little bit at first as a little bit of rejection. <laughs> I mean, yeah, she doesn't want to see me anymore. Right. And, um, but I, you know, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, after you read the book, you know, you'll have some more questions and I'll, you know, I, I will answer any questions. Um, Absolutely. You know, there's more there. There was a, there was one doctor and you can even cut this one out if you want. We don't have to put it in um, this segment, but what sure. really, what really galls me is there was one psychologist that I was sent to for depression when I started taking that antidepressant that I didn't stay on. And um, he was a professor at the university. And I went because I felt fat. And he did, um, yeah, I, at that point, um, because this was up north, um, you know, wore jackets and sweaters in the winter. And then even when it got warmer, I would wear a jacket because I didn't want anyone to, you know, I covered up my body. And he would say, well, we're going to desensitize you. And he started by touching my shoulders. And let's say, because I just put it in my book, suffice it to say that he started to touch areas where he shouldn't have touched. And he knew, right. I believe he knew I had an eating disorder because he gave me the book, The Golden Cage, to read by Hilda Bruch one of the foremost, she's deceased now, but she was one of the foremost experts at that time in anorexia nervosa. And I read that book and I hid it. I can't believe that I hid it from my family when I was reading it because I didn't want them to see it. I wish to God now that they had seen it and that they would have known that this is what I have. I went back and I told that therapist, I identify with Alma. That was the main character in the book. Everything she says, it's like, it's, that's how I feel. But that SOB did not diagnose me. And um, I shamefully left therapy, you know, and I didn't tell anyone about being molested. Until yeah, I was going to say, later. also molested you. Yeah. Yeah. And if he had diagnosed me at that point, even though, you know, it was still, still, you know, years into the eating disorder. Who knows? Because I'm a tenacious person and I persevere and I try and I, you know, I said, I'm going to get this book published. I didn't go the traditional route. I went, you know, my own way to do it. And, um, if I'm, you know, I'm very determined. And I just, he's deceased now. And when I heard that he had passed away, I said, thank God, he's not going to hurt anyone else. And, um, you know, I really believe that I could have been in a different place in my life if he had diagnosed me like he should have. 
Absolutely. I mean, we meet our great uh, physicians and, you know, people in the medical profession along the way. And there we definitely, everybody has had an experience with someone that does a disservice or even, you know, causes more damage. Mm-hmm. We'll tell our listeners again where they can find your book and the name of it. My book, Butterflies Are Free, What About Me? One Woman's Battle with Anorexia Nervosa by Wendy R. Levine is available at Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Fantastic. Well, we'll have you back on after I get the chance to read it. Unfortunately, didn't get here in time to do the interview. But thank you so much for coming on the phone or coming on the show, Wendy. And again, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And I really urge anyone who is suffering to please get help. You don't have to be alone. Absolutely. And thank you to our listeners for another edition of Mental Health News Radio. But never without good intentions I heat up and act on my emotions Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps. Or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network, or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you, After all we promised we'd be cordial, sometimes in you I can fight it. Good boy.